Uh, this morning, I want to be speaking on the theme of make much of Jesus. Our, our desire as a church is to make much of Christ. Um, and it should be the desire of each of us to make much of him. And I really, really want to focus on why that's the case here in Acts chapter 19, verse 1 to verse 20. That as a church and as individuals and as families within the church, our, our goal both in what we do on a Sunday and Wednesday when we meet together and also just in our, our daily individual lives should be to make much of him. And uh, so many things distract us. Uh, even in church life, we get distracted by other things other than Christ, other things other than the gospel. And I think this passage really helps us to see how important it is that we make much of him, that Jesus is the center, that he's the focus, that he continues to be the foundation um, of everything we do uh, as a church family. And I, I really hope to bring that out uh, here today. So we're in, uh, we're in chapter 19 of Acts, and uh, we've, we've begun the third missionary journey. Uh, there might be a little helpful map that comes up on the screen. I think I put that there. Yeah, so if you can see it, we're over here in Ephesus now. Uh, Paul has been going through some of the older churches that he's planted in his first and second missionary journey, uh, helping them, strengthening them, and now he's in Ephesus. He promised he would come back to Ephesus, and now he's here. So the first thing we see in verse 1 to verse 7 is Paul and 12 guys. Twelve and the, Paul and the 12, he meets 12 men. It uh, tells us that in, in uh, verse Oh, let me see here. I've got it in my notes where, where we see it. In verse 7, uh, now the men were about 12 in all. So there's these 12 guys, and um, some some strange things are happening here, and it took me a long time to try and figure this out in a way that I can try and communicate it to, to you, my church family, in a way that would be helpful. Um, but these men are called disciples. In verse 1, it says, It happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples. So what's a disciple then? What is it? What is a disciple in uh, in the Bible terms? Does anyone know what that means? Disciple, a follower, a learner, uh, someone who sits at the feet of someone else and, and then follows them and takes on their teaching and then lives out their teaching. That's the word disciple. So we have this these disciples. It says in in verse one, and, and Paul asks them this question in verse two: Have you? Her, have you received the Holy Spirit when you believed? And the question is, did you believe? What did they believe, right? And uh, and they say to him, we don't even, we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. So they haven't received the Holy Spirit. They haven't heard of the Holy Spirit. And Paul's a bit confused. So there's there's these disciples who have not heard of the Holy Spirit. And Paul's watching them and the way they're living their lives and he's a bit confused so he asked that question have you received the holy spirit and they say no we haven't we haven't heard of him so in verse three uh, he says to them and so what then were you baptized and they said we were baptized into john's baptism john's baptism of course is this preparation baptism of the people of israel to get ready for the coming messiah uh, to make way for the king who's going to come so, so what does this all mean for us as we read these few verses together? Well, we can suppose that these men are Jews. These are Jewish men because um, they've been baptized by John. Um, they've heard John's message, whether that's from John directly 
or whether it's from Apollos, perhaps, because Apollos, remember, he was in there preaching up to the baptism of John before he got more information from Priscilla and Aquila in the previous chapter. So it could have been him, and they've heard the message, and they got baptized into that before Apollos got properly converted over and then shared the true message, and they, they didn't get to hear it. John's message, John the Baptist's message, was the Messiah is coming, and Israel should prepare itself. And so these men respond to that, the Messiah is coming and we should prepare ourselves by believing and by being baptized, okay? And so Paul's response in verse 4 is, is quite interesting. He says to them, John did baptize, but his baptism was a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who's going to come after him. And that person is the Messiah Jesus, the Messiah Jesus. Notice that Paul doesn't go into more information about the Holy Spirit. He says, if you've been baptized by the Spirit, they said, we haven't heard of the Spirit. And then Paul's response is, well, let, is, is not, let me tell you more about the Spirit. Paul's response is what? Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. So this, they, we should believe on him who would come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. So, it's likely these men have never heard that Jesus was the Messiah. They, they've heard that the Messiah is coming. They've prepared themselves for the Messiah's coming, but they never got to hear this Messiah is Jesus. And so they've never heard of the death of Christ or the resurrection of Christ. And therefore, of course, they've never heard of the Holy Spirit coming upon the church on the day of Pentecost. They haven't heard any of this stuff. So this means that these men we're looking at here, these men, these 12 guys, are what we call Old Testament saints, okay? Old Testament saints. Are we all, we all still all right there? This is, this is going to be heavy for a little bit. Hopefully we can hold on, okay? I'm trying my best. Uh, Old Testament saints, okay? Uh, people like Moses and David and Abraham and Daniel and people like Ruth and, and Esther and Rahab. These are Old Testament saints, people who've trusted God and, and they've believed that one day there's going to be a future Messiah who would rescue them. They don't know his name. They don't quite know what that's going to look like, but they've trusted God and they've believed one day there's a Messiah coming. And so they're, they're saved. These Old Testament guys are saved. How do you get saved in the Old Testament? Anyone know? How do you get saved in the Old Testament? By faith. By faith. D.L. Moody was talking to you. There was a Sunday school teacher teaching the children one day. And she was saying, in the New Testament, we get saved by trusting in Jesus. And in the Old Testament, we get saved through all the animal sacrifices. And that's not true. We're saved by faith. Romans chapter 4, Abraham believed. And it was counted to him as righteousness. It's always been by faith that we're saved. So what's different then between the Old Testament and the New Testament? What's the difference? If we're always saved by faith, what's the difference? And, and there's a few. First of all, we're see, we're, the difference is the object that we come to believe in. So in the Old Testament, you believe in the God who promises and in some future Messiah, according to 1 Peter 1. In the New Testament, our faith is in Jesus Christ and in his death and resurrection. That's where our faith lies. The second difference is this. When we're saved... As a New Testament believer, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and indwells you permanently, right? The Holy Spirit never leaves. You can grieve him. 
but he, and you can quench him, but he'll never leave. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So when you trust in Christ as Savior, you are sealed. You're locked in, right? You're his, and the Holy Spirit seals you to belong to Christ forever. Yeah? In the Old Testament, that's not the case. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit can leave. So we have in Psalm 51, when David's praying repentance in Psalm 51, what does he pray? Let not your Holy Spirit depart from me. Because the Holy Spirit, it's, it's a temporary experience in the Old Testament. It's a permanent reality in the New Testament. Okay, so, so hold, hold on there with me. We have Old Testament saints and we have New Testament saints. These guys are Old Testament saints, okay? And the fact that there's 12 is quite significant because that's, that's Israel, right? These Jewish people, Israel, who believed in, the, in this John the Baptist message that the Messiah is coming. Okay. The other thing to bear in mind about this passage of scripture is that the gospel, the, the four gospels, Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I do know them, and the book of Acts, uh, the gospels and Acts is a tra- it's what we call a transitional period. All right? So we have Old Testament saints and New Testament saints, and the, and the gospels and the book of Acts is a transitional period where God is moving his people out of the old covenant and into the new covenant, right? Jewish people who were part of the old covenant, who, who, who are saints, are moving from being in the Old Testament economy into the New Testament economy through belief in Jesus Christ. This is a transitional period of time, okay? Um, we have people like that. During, can, can I shout out some names? People in the Gospels who are Old Testament saints who are responding by trusting that Jesus is the Messiah. Does anyone know anybody? Even at Jesus' birth, any names come up? Yeah, Simeon. He's an Old Testament saint, right? God speaks to him directly. He has prophecy. He knows the Messiah is coming before he dies. So he's an Old Testament saint. And when he sees Jesus, something in him says, that's the one. It's about him. And so he, he, he's already a saved man. Then the evidence of that he's a sea of man is that when Jesus enters the scene, he believes that Jesus is the one. Anyone else? Nicodemus, perhaps, is it could potentially be someone who was an Old Testament saint who came to believe the true message of Jesus. Yeah. You've got, you've got Anna as well at the, in, in the birth of Christ. She begins to prophesy and recognize Christ as well. So, one of the major themes of John's gospel, everyone's like, whoa, hold on, we're getting too much information. That one of the major themes of John's gospel is, is this. The evidence that you're a genuine Old Testament saint is that when you see Jesus of Nazareth and you hear his claims that he's the Messiah, you believe that he's the one. That's the evidence. It, during this transitional period of time, in history, you're an Old Testament saint, you believe the God of promise, you believe one day a Messiah comes, and then one day you see this Jesus and you hear his teachings and your faith turns to him. And that's an evidence that you truly are an Old Testament saint moving into the New Testament economy. For example, in John chapter 5 and verse 38, Jesus says this, but you do not have his word abiding in you. He's talking to the Pharisees. You don't have God's word abiding in you. What's the evidence that God's word is not abiding in the Pharisees? Because whom he sent, him you do not believe. The the evidence that you're not an Old Testament saint and God's word isn't in you is that you're looking right at the Messiah. 
You're looking right at God in the flesh and you do not believe. Okay. And in John chapter 17, as the disciples are moving from being Old Testament saints into New Testament saints, eventually after Christ's death and resurrection, Jesus prays this. I have manifested your name to men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. They're Old Testament saints. You give them to me. And they've kept your word. So they already belong to you. They were already uh, regenerate. And now they have come to me. Because one of the evidences of being an Old Testament saint is that you'll recognize Christ. John the Baptist himself was probably the last Old Testament saint. Um, he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He died before Christ's death and resurrection. So he never moved into being a New Testament uh, saint. Okay, uh, so after the resurrection of Jesus, there's still this transition period. God is gracious and merciful. He's very patient. And Jewish saints uh, believe that Jesus was the Messiah that they're waiting for, are moving from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Are we all still, we all still with me? Yeah? So you have Old Testament saints moving to New Testament saints. Um, so you have Apollos in the previous chapter. Apollos was likely an Old Testament saint. And he's preaching God's word and God's with him and God's using him. But he doesn't know the full message yet. And so Priscilla and Aquila take him alongside and say, listen, Apollos, this is good stuff, man. But there's more. And it's Christ's death and resurrection and the person of Jesus. And he believes that and he moves from Old Testament saint into New Testament saint. And so these men here in Ephesus, these guys here, these 12 these are likely Old Testament saints. They've heard about the coming of the Messiah through John's message. They've heard of their need to be ready to receive the Messiah and to prepare themselves through repentance. And so they've believed this message of John. They're waiting for news about the Messiah. He's coming. John says he's coming. Who is he? And what's he going to do? And, and what, how is he going to rescue us? And God sends Paul along and he tells them in verse 4 about Jesus. That is on Christ Jesus. And because these guys here are, all, are already Old Testament saints, verse 1 says they're disciples, so they're already Old Testament saints. When they hear Paul's message, they respond by believing because they're already in. And so they respond by believing this message and move from Old Testament into New Testament. The sign of their faith in Jesus as the Messiah that they've been waiting for is that they get baptized in verse 5 in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everyone want to stand up and shake a little bit? Uh, that hurt me. <laughs> I was saying it. Um, so it's just really important that we understand this because this passage can get used in, in harmful ways. Um, and it's important we understand what's, what's taking place here. So Paul, after these guys are baptized, they, they, he lays his hands on them. And as a gracious sign that these men have moved from Old Testament into New Testament, they believe the truth. And so they speak in tongues and they prophesy, fulfilling once again Old Testament prophecy that the young men of Israel will prophesy. Um, and so once they enter into the new covenant, and that's what's happening here. These guys are moving into the new. Now, this isn't a pattern necessarily. Uh, because in Acts 10, they speak in tongues and then they're baptized. Whereas here, they're baptized and then they speak in tongues. On the numerous parts of the book of Acts, they get baptized 
and there is no speaking in tongues. So this isn't necessarily a pattern um, that we need to make sure that we're following uh, today. So for, on the 3rd of September, uh, for those of you who are getting baptized, please know we're not sitting here waiting to see if you're going to speak in tongues or prophesy. And if you don't, we're like, you're not a true Christian. You may go home, right? That's not going to happen. Like that, that, That's not what we're waiting for on, on that day, not on the 3rd of September. So that's that's verse 1 to 7. Paul makes much of Jesus. And these men believe on Jesus. And as a result of them believing in Jesus, they're baptized in the name of Jesus. Paul lays his hands on them as an apostle, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And the evidence of that back then here is that they're prophesying and speaking in tongues. There we go. Make much of Jesus, number one. The second thing we look at in verse 8 to verse 10 is Paul in the synagogue. Uh, Paul goes into the synagogue now. He's, he's been with these guys. He's led them to the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now he goes into the synagogue like he promised he would, and he begins to preach Christ to the synagogue. It says here he preached for three months every Sabbath. And verse 8 says he preached the kingdom of God, things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, we know Paul reasonably well now that we're in Acts 19. He's preaching the kingdom of God. What do you think is the content of Paul's sermons in the synagogue? What do you think Paul's preaching? Jesus. Jesus. So somehow the kingdom of God and Christ's death and resurrection and who he is, they conflate together. And Paul's preaching the Messiah has come. He's not what you expected. He's not about Roman conquest. He's about the conquest of sin and death and Satan. And he has come and he has died in your place. And he's risen again, a glorious king. And his reign will spread from shore to shore. And in the meantime, he's calling you to repentance. That he'll be your king. So he's preaching the kingdom of God. And as normal, it says in verse 9, that some began to harden their hearts and did not believe. This is always the case that many come to receive Jesus Christ as Savior. Old Testament saints moving into the New Testament. And many refuse to acknowledge him because, as we read in John 5, God's word is not in their hearts. And so they don't respond to the faith message of Jesus Christ. So what does Paul do as a result? These men begin to speak evil of the way before the multitude in the synagogue. So Paul's like, right, it's time to go. We've been here for three months. We've given them every opportunity to hear the gospel. Time to move on um, and keep preaching Jesus to the Greeks uh, at Ephesus. So he moves in verse 9 to the school or the lecture hall of a man called uh, Tyrannus. For two whole years, it says in verse 10, everyone, I love this, uh, everyone in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. Everyone. This is the Roman province of Asia Minor in, in the west of that, that continent of modern day Turkey. Everyone heard the message of Christ. Now, this isn't just one bloke. This isn't just Paul preaching this message to everyone he can this is paul and the church right this is paul and the the congregation throughout the city of ephesus saying how do we get this message to the other parts of asia minor and what we read in other epistles is that people were sent out from ephesus and people left ephesus to preach jesus to the rest of asia minor places like colossi and laodicea and heriopolis where Christ's name was lifted up, the gospel was preached, and people came to believe. But what was the what was on the 
What was on the tongue of the people who left Ephesus as they left that city and went? Maybe some of them were working, so they traveled afar. Maybe some of them went intentionally just to get to different places. What was on the lips of the people, do you think? The word of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ being exalted and lifted up once more. His gospel. Verse 10. The word of the Lord Jesus was heard uh, by all. Okay, so we get to verse 11 to verse 20. So we make much of Jesus. We make much of Jesus. Verse 11 to verse 20, we see Paul and the seven. Um, Ephesus at this time, it's a real stronghold of Satan. This city is the capital of Asia Minor. It's a stronghold of Satan in two ways. First of all, we have the temple to Diana or Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People were coming en masse to the city to worship this false goddess. Um, cult prostitutes were in this in this temple as well. This is a place of real darkness. And at the same time, we also have in Ephesus sorcery and magic. I made it sound really sorcerous there by stuttering over the word sorcery and magic. This is throughout the city. It's like this really place, this place of real darkness, uh, the stronghold of Satan. And so, what God does is He adds witness to Paul's apostolic preaching in verse eleven to verse twelve by miracles extraordinary or unusual miracles were taking place in verse 11 so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them now we're not going to go there for time's sake but it's very similar to acts chapter 5 with peter and people looking just to step over Peter's shadow to be healed. Here we're touching Paul's uh, handkerchief just to be healed. God's healing uh, in miraculous big ways to authenticate this message that Jesus is the Christ. Now, in the, now what's happening is some Jewish exorcists come along. This passage is, is mega. It's mental, this passage of scripture. Uh, so some Jewish exorcists, uh, they start coming into Ephesus. And they add more confusion to the spiritual darkness. It's already spiritually dark. Uh, and now there's more confusion being added by these Jewish men coming in, claiming to be exorcists. Question. Can these men actually exorcise demons? What do we think? It's like, <laughs> it's passages of scripture. Um, so we come to, um, let's, let's read some passages and, and try to see what's happening here. Matthew chapter 12, verse 27. Matthew 12, 27, um, come up in a little bit. It says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, this is Jesus speaking. If I cast, if I can cast out demons, you're, you're saying that I cast out demons by the Lord of darkness, basically. By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. So Jesus is kind of adding some credibility to the fact that these sons are either claiming to be able to, or they can actually do this. Okay. Then we get to another passage of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. This is really heavy. Jesus says this, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? We, we, we prophesied. Have we not cast out demons in your name? And have we not done many wonders, miracles in your name? And what's Jesus' response to, we can prophesy, we've cast out demons, and we've done miracles. What's his response to this? The next verse says that Jesus says to them, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
So it seems through what Jesus is saying, there's the potential to be able to do these things and yet not be born again, not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Think of Judas. Judas was able to, to cast out demons. Judas was able to work miracles. And Jesus says, woe to that one, the son of perdition. That, this is mental. This is a mental passage of scripture, right? So these men, whether they're able to do it or not, come into the city of Ephesus, claiming to be exorcists of evil spirits. For, verse 14 says some of these guys were quite well known. A Jewish chief priest, the sons of Siva. And these were, these were well-known guys who were uh, claiming to be able to do this. So in verse 16, there's a man who has a demon. And he come, they come along to him. And look what it says in verse 13. They were using the name of Jesus. They took upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who got evil spirits. And they said this, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Not the Jesus we know. Not the Jesus we have a relationship with. Not King Jesus who we've trusted and who died and rose again. But that Jesus person who Paul preaches. So they're trying to use his name as some sort of incantation or formula or good luck charm. And of course, it's not going to work. The evil spirit responds in verse 15. I know Jesus and I know Paul, but I, we don't know you. Who are you? Who are you? And what, what he means by that, this evil spirit is, I recognize power and authority in Jesus. And I recognize power and authority from Paul because he's the apostle of Jesus. But you have no power or authority over me, is what the demon's saying. And this is shown, of course, in that the man attacks these guys, strips them, and they run out of the place defeated and humiliated. There you go. What do you do with a passage like that? I was like, I haven't talked to Matt about this passage. I'm like, thanks, Matt. You know, thanks for giving me this one. I get Herod getting eaten with worms. I get this passage of scripture. This is heavy. Um, but this is what happens here. Verse 17, this story begins to spread across Ephesus. And the result is, look at it again, verse 17. Jesus' name becomes magnified. His name becomes magnified. He becomes recognized for who he is. And as a result, verse 18, many come to believe that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Savior of the world. And they come with confession and telling their deeds. They come in repentance uh, to Christ. They come believing. And as a result of believing, they repent. God sovereignly overruled the actions of an evil spirit, and the fraudulence of Jewish exorcists to bring glory to his name and salvation to many in Ephesus. That's what, that's what God can do. So those who trust in Jesus as Savior, as a result of all of this, evidence their salvation through repentance. Yeah? Old Testament saints are evidencing their salvation by trusting Jesus when they hear all about him. And now these New Testament saints are Evidence in their salvation through repentance. In verse 19, it says, Many of those who practice magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of all the things that were burnt, and it came to a total of 50,000 pieces of silver. It's, it's a lot, a lot of money. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of wages, of daily wages, is, is what's being burnt here. 
And repentance is costly to these people. But it says in verse 20, as a result of all of this, the word of God continued to spread and prevail over all things. Over false religions, over false practices, over the idolatries of the city, the sins of the city, the sorcery of the city. The word of God is growing and prevailing over all of it. And many, as a result, are coming to Jesus Christ. So what are we going to do with all this? Um, I'm like beating my head. How do I take Old Testament saints, move into New Testament saints uh, to the 21st century? How do I take demon exorcism? to us today <laughs> and uh what i want to say this this morning what i want to really focus on again is is make much of jesus make much of jesus one of the things that's happened throughout this passage of scripture in verse 1 to verse 20 is christ is made much of and as a result good things happen christ is made much of and as a result good things happen so that's the takeaway as we make much of jesus the spirit of god will work and bless how do we know the Spirit of God will work and bless if we make much of Jesus? Because what's, tell me this, shout out again. What's the heart's desire of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, to see Christ exalted, right? That's the heart's desire of the Holy Spirit. That's what he wants. The Spirit wants Christ lifted up. The Spirit wants Christ magnified, Christ glorified. So as we make much of Jesus, we partner with the Holy Spirit. And he's pleased then to work and to bless. As we make much of Jesus, the Spirit will bring people to Christ. As we make much of Jesus, the Spirit will transform lives and bring about repentance like we see here. As we make much of Jesus, the Spirit will cause the gospel to prevail over sin and unbelief. So my, my plea with us this morning is in your own private life, much, starting today, going all the way through to next Sunday, make much of Christ in your life. Make much of him. Seek him dearly. Seek him actively. Seek him intimately. Make much of him in your life. My plea to you this morning to those of you who are in families is make much of Jesus in your family. Point your wife to Christ. Point your husband to Christ. Point your parents to Christ. Point your children to Christ. Point the people in your home to Jesus. Make much of Jesus at home. And my plea again this morning is, as a church family, may we make much, much, much of Jesus. May we make much of him. May he be the theme and center and focus of all that we do at, at Burton Baptist. It's Jesus that we preach. It's Jesus' word that we want to see spread. It's Jesus' name we long to see magnified. It's Jesus' gospel we long to witness growing mightily and prevailing. So let me... Let me say this, if we make it about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit won't bless. When Paul knew that these men didn't have the Spirit, he didn't make much of the Spirit. What did he make much of? He made much of Jesus. And what happened? The Spirit came. If we make it about power and doing extraordinary deeds and big things and big actions and big programs and big events, we will not experience power. These seven sons, these Jewish fraudulent exorcists, tried to make it about power. And they brought Jesus' name in as a tool for their own agendas. But Paul, who preached Jesus and made much of Jesus, he was the one that had miraculous power. And if we make it about repentance, 
and, and living well and, and, and being good Christians, if we make it about that, I guarantee you, we're not going to get repentance. We won't get it. If we make it about obedience, we won't get obedience. It's only as Jesus' name was magnified throughout the city that as a response, many came believing and repenting. It's as Jesus' name is lifted up, as he's exalted, as the gospel is spread, as Christ is made much of, we get the spirit, we get power, and we get repentance. So as a church family, the plea today, make much of him in your life. Make much of him in our life as a congregation. If we make it about Jesus, we get Jesus. And as C.S. Lewis says, we get Christ and with him, we get everything else. We get the spirit, we get power, and we get repentance. So make much of him. Make much of Christ uh, in your life, in your family life, in our life as a church family. And experience then the blessing uh, of the spirit of God working in all of that. Because that's what he loves to do. Amen.